the best short films for lifelong learning, recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love, with your host, Richard Lee. This is a rule-breaking episode. It's an episode about the avant-garde or experimental films. But it's also rule-breaking because I'm actually live and present here with my guest, uh, mainly because he's so artistically single-minded that he refused to be interviewed on Skype. <laughs> a brief history. Um, this man started teaching in 1973 during his own career as an independent filmmaker and kept on teaching for about 20 years, as I understand. In the late 1970s, he started teaching at Australia's first and I think Australia's greatest film school, Swinburne School of Film and TV, which later became the Victorian College of the Arts uh, or the VCA School of Film and TV when it moved into Melbourne's art precinct. This man earned a colourful reputation at the film school amongst staff and students as he pushed boundaries in every direction influencing the lives and the artistic appreciation of many, including myself. He taught me in his penultimate year at VCA. He is tenacious, he's insightful, and he's passionate about all things film, both in his teaching and in his own work, uh, which he continues to produce even now uh, in his 70s. He said I could say he's in his 70s, but that's all. He was once described to me by veteran actor um, John Flouse as the most creative person um, that he knows, which is truly saying something. So many things I could say about this man, a man that I have deep respect for, for having um, taught me so much uh, and continuing to do so as my friend now living in his retirement. Peter Tammer, welcome to my podcast. Well, Richard, how can I follow after an introduction like that? Well, let me, let me start with an easy one. It may not be easy. What is an avant-garde film? It is an easy question because, I've, uh, you will recall, I've always been a bit averse to the categorisation of films, that they should fall into one category or another. And that's been a problem for me, in a sense, all my life because um, I've made films that can be fitted into a number of categories. Like I remember years ago when I made a film called um, A Woman of Our Time about Myra Roper. Uh, it was a portrait film, and I didn't know which section of the Sydney Film Festival I should enter it in, whether it should be a, an avant-garde or a documentary. And in fact, it didn't get judged in any category because they didn't know which to put it in. And so they said it was one of the best films ended that year, but it failed to get judged. <laughs> because of the category? Because of the ah. category mix-up. They said I should have been more forthright in putting it into a category. And I said I would leave it up to them to put it into a category because I didn't know which category was most suitable. So that's a short way of getting into it. Second thing is the word avant-garde itself really is something that comes out of art history. I know it comes out of art history related to the period of the early 20th century the period that would have been the end of Impressionism, the start of Modernism and Cubism and a whole lot of other art movements, um, Expressionism, all of those art movements. Then there were poets, there were artists, there were musicians who were often referred to as avant-garde artists. And what 
that meant for them, I suppose, was that they were ahead of the game, ahead of their time, breaking new ground. So, But that means that anything that is exploratory is automatically avant-garde. Anything that is avant-garde might be called experimental, and of course you've heard of films being called experimental as well as avant-garde, but I think anything that isn't experimental is not art to start with because I think, you know, that I know, for example, Beethoven in his later years was doing stuff that by comparison with his middle period or his earlier period would have to be called experimental, breaking new ground. So he would have been an avant-garde artist, even though he didn't know the term was being used. It would not have been used in his time. So so there, I have a problem with the naming of categories like that. So around about the early 60s, I tried to get together with Monique, my wife, a number of uh, short films to present at the Dendi in Middle Brighton. Now, some of those films were more avant-garde and some were more conventional. So we had films like Fun Radio and my film On the Ball and another film I made called Beethoven and all that jazz on the program. Now, I am going to mention that around about that time, we had had a visit to Melbourne of Sydney filmmakers who went under the name of the banner of Ubu Films. And they were largely represented by Aggie Reed and Elby Toms. And I met these guys and I saw their program when it was presented at the Dendi and it was their program which inspired me to get our program together. Here was this screening of Sydney filmmakers' films with some underground films from the United States and one of the films that absolutely took me by storm, made a huge impression on me, was a short film by Bruce Connor called Report, and it was about the assassination of JFK. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way towards the trade mart. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. But it's the most unusual film because it has a slightly documentary quality because it was made of newsreel offcuts and things like that. It also has uh, an experimental quality because he made it of... I think from offcuts from editing room floors in newsreel editing sources that were available to him, a lot of the film is actually composed of a countdown leader, and that has the pun that you could think of, the leader is counting down, or the life of the leader is counting down, and JFK's life was, life was waning as the commentary says that, that JFK's been attacked, he's been taken to the hospital, and, uh, and the commentator that came off TV or radio was saying, and I repeat, the prime mover of our society, JFK is dead. Uh, And it was hysterical because it was going with a loop of a leader counting down to the, which was used as a countdown leader for commercials, feature films and everything, right? And then, of course, it had other news really shots of JFK and, and Jackie getting off the plane, Jackie in a little pink suit and all this, although it's a black and white film. So there were all these sorts of things going on in this very short film that presented a tumultuous event in, in a tumultuous way, but it was both exploratory, experimental, avant-garde and incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting to me as a young filmmaker. I had not thought until I saw that film, that a film could be so short and so rich in its associations. So 
that was one of the that was a very powerful seminal experience for me. Not only the other films that Ubu brought to show, but that film in particular put me on a trajectory that took me towards the American underground. Let, let me continue with that question. That yeah. that film because you've started with that. Yeah. I, it reminded me. Um, of my, I suppose, response to a lot of experimental uh, and avant-garde films, and that's both... And it came up... I went to the the Melbourne International Film Festival um, Experimental Shorts um, screening last year, and I came away with a sense of two things. Two opposing things happened for me. One was um, the sense of playfulness. So I'm stuck with these weird images and breaking free of the rules and the conventions. That's on the one hand. But the other is this sort of um, almost depressing weariness that you get from, you know, that, that something is be- can become boring because it's so navel-gazing or it's so wrapped up in trying to be new and different that it sort of loses any meaning or engagement for me. Um, and I continue to sway between those two opinions because I know that somewhere in the wealth of, of what everyone tries to do as we move forward the art of films, there'll be a little gem somewhere. But I do too. I, I don't dwell upon all the ones that upset me. I don't know. I mean, if something is supposedly avant-garde or underground and it bores the crap out of me, I don't tell people about that film. I don't dwell on it. And there are plenty of them. But, you know, I'm, I'm only interested in the gems in whichever field of, um, of film or, or uh, art movement or anything. I'm not, I'm not interested in the also-rans. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a... Perhaps we should move then to the, the sort of historical context of this. And it's interesting you've started with, the, you know, talking about your work in the 60s. And that's, to me, I mean, you know, I was, I was born in 1970. I was born at the time when the 70s was kind of exploding with all this new film yeah. stuff. When I say that I caught my first underground films in the 60s, like 64, 65, 66, and Australian filmmakers like the Cantrells, like Nigel, like me and like other filmmakers started making what we called our self-expression films, Michael Lee, people like that, um, uh, other people, the Sydney people whose names I haven't mentioned, and there's too many of them for me to go through. I don't want to make a list of names, all right? Uh they, we all got started in the 60s, but I don't think I flowered as a filmmaker until the 70s, 80s and 90s. I think my best work probably came in my life when I was in my 40s. And I'm now talking about films like, um, say, Melakuta Stampede, Journey to the End of Night and my triptych film and, who's a, and Fear of the Dark. I made those films in the early 80s, but my... What gave rise to my films in the early 80s was everything I went through in 60s, 70 and the early 80s. They didn't come out of nowhere. All of those films came out of what I had absorbed in that period. Now, they also included absorption from another source, which I haven't mentioned. And that is that I was completely bowled over by Chris Marker's film, La Jete, when I was about a 20-year-old filmmaker. I was working and studying part-time. My first couple of years, I was a member of the Melbourne Uni Film Society. I went to all the screenings that Muffs put on at Melbourne Uni. And I think in one of those, or in a film society screening, I saw La Jete. On the 10th day, images begin to ooze like confessions. A peacetime morning. Peacetime bedroom, a real bedroom, real children, real birds, real cats, 
Graves. And La Jetée was a European film made by Chris Marker, and he made it at the beginning of the period that we would call the French New Wave. He didn't make it deep into the French New Wave. He was early in the French New Wave. I would put his film, La Jetée, without looking at Google, without looking at YouTube to find out where it is, I would assume that it came out of 60, 61, 62, the same period that gave rise to the 400 Blows, to um, Godard's early films like Vive Sa Vie and uh, Les Carabiniers and Mal's films, Le Beau Serge and those sorts of films. But, but, but the film that... Chris Marker made was something like a 20-minute film and it is like a quintessential science fiction film told in stills except for one shot which moves and it explores science fiction themes but they're also philosophic themes. Now I would like to give them another name. They're not avant-garde, they're poetic films. These films are all poetic. Why are they not called poetic films? When I watched that it felt... It was like a fantasy, you know. It's it this fantasy. science fiction fantasy. And it, uh, look, I was quite struck by it, but, but by the end I thought, what was it about? I, I couldn't make... And yet, it's one that I remember from what you showed me, and I, I just thought, right. it's well, really interesting. If, if you don't understand the film, that is more or less a self-criticism of your own because it's saying that the film is offering something that you don't get. I don't have a problem of not getting La Jete and I don't like explaining films to people. For example, you and I have discussed this before in the past. I actually don't like people reading about a film before they see a film. I want them to experience the film without having read up on it. I don't like people, say, having seen a film and before they can form an opinion, they've got to go and find what the critics said about it so that they can feel that they can say something. I, I find that repulsive you see so i think that what what you get out of la jetée or out of report or out of um frank film is your own business if you get it the way i get it that's fine if you don't that's bad luck right so on the other hand i actually don't think you'll get more out of it just by reading about what it's meant to be or or what people interpret it to be because if you didn't get that yourself it's not relevant to you now, with La Jetée, I see it as a narrative film. I see it also as a version of science fiction. It is a, it is a fantasy, as you said, it's a, but it is a fantasy film within the orbit that I would call the ambit of science fiction. It's a film that's got all of those qualities involved in it, but it also has a very beautifully constructed audio track, which most people probably don't focus on in their judgment of the film but for me I I think the film has a very brooding um, elegant soundtrack which is absolutely perfect for that film it's a major partner in the film now I don't know if you felt that when you were watching the film did you feel that it was a very musical soundtrack yeah, I did. I, I at least picked up on that much. <laughs> I, and I, look, and I did pick up on a few things. Um, but one of the, and, and I just want to actually jump back to the other film, the first uh, report that we talked about, um, yeah. and pick up on this idea of um, the tension between obscurity and clarity. And, and I think, and I like the, this word you use, poetry. These are poetic films rather than necessarily trying to push a bound. Um, 
Something, I mean, I, I loved report. It actually grew on me once I got... I actually wondered early on... To, on it whether, probably irritated uh, you. Well, I thought, know. oh, no, is my connection broken? You know, the picture was going, but the soundtrack was continuing. I thought, oh, no, no, it's still there. <laughs> but after I got over that weirdness, you know, there's all of... The fragments of images started to form their own to meaning coalesce. for me, to coalesce and to... And, you know, there's stuff about the bullfight, you know, was just... Magnificent. Oh, it was, it was Magnificent. awful and, you know, gripping, you know. What a great... What a great the, metaphor! The, we watch film. exactly that. You know, here's the the bullfighter is almost being killed. So everyone jumps on and attacks the bull and kills the bull with all these spears. From it was awful to watch. You know, it's and like he's the, the young bull. He's the yeah, exactly. Um, so there was all of that happening, but the you know the advertising footage, you know, with the fancy new fridge opening up, and 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 ultimately oh, it's just rich. Yeah, and and but arriving at that final scene of the keyboard and then zooming in on the word cell. Now the reason I think of this idea of obscurity and clarity. Because to me, um, you know, an av- a film that's being poetic like that, I wonder how much you- you're sort of riding that line between if you explain everything, then there's no space for people to make up their own meaning about yeah. it. The moment you go, this is what it's about, mm-hmm. it's either agitprop or you're bashing people over the head with the message you want to, want to give them. Well said. And, and I thought the word sell, does that cross the line? I don't know. It's sort of, it does and it doesn't. But, but I want to explore that idea of, you know, how, how much should it be? clear and how much should it be obscure all right well for me uh that is that is a balancing act for every film that it's, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about documentaries or feature films drama or whether you're talking about avant-garde poetic films uh the question is for me when films are so spelt out that it's that there is no mystery and there is no working out. I really love films that make you do the homework yourself. You have to say, why am I being mystified by this film? Leave a bit up to the audience and don't treat them like idiots. Don't treat them like imbeciles. Then if that is the case, then the audience should be allowed to be uh, wondering, am I getting this or is something else being... Is the filmmaker presenting me with something that is uh, elusive, that I'm not easily able to get? Or if I, if I think about it a bit more, it'll come to me. I like that. Yeah, yeah. But that, you picked up on a word that, that, I, that I love too, and that's wonder. You know, yeah. I think the idea of wondering and that you're inviting construction of meaning from the audience is, yeah. is so, so true. So let me move on to a, a film that is full of wonder. This is Frank film. It's the story of my life from the beginning up to the present and 70, into the future. 69. Of 68, perhaps considering the 67, speed of it, I should call it a fast Frank film. 65. Basically 64, what it is is that I've been saving images for the past five or six years. All the things 60, that appeal to me because I like them. 58. And sometimes I like them just because they look nice. And other times 55, I like them because they mean something special 53, to me. Uh, 52. I'll start at the beginning. I was 50. Born 49, in Key West, Florida. 48. My father was in a naval station there. 46. And 45. Uh, I was the first of five September kids. 6, 1944. And it was, uh, me. Me. I guess Moi. a good time to be born. War was almost Francis over. Peter Moore. And this was actually a short film that won the 1974 Academy Award for Best Short Subject animated films. Now, to me, on its own, that's quite staggering when we think about the current accusations about the Academy yeah. um, just being tired old, yeah. old old bunch of suits. But it was it's a film that I still recall vividly that you showed us. Um, 
it's it's a shame that the quality online is so poor because the colour and the richness of it is, uh, you know, it's got to be seen to be believed. And he, and he, he starts off his description by saying, I should call this the Frank Fast film, you know, because it goes so fast. So just two things before I get to a question. One of them is, you know, here's a guy that's been saving images for, you know, for truckloads of, well, he says five or six years, but there's truckloads of images that he's collected. Uh, it's deeply biographical. It digs into the very personal headspace of everything that he can remember throughout his entire life up to that time. Um, and I think what I learned from watching this was the real possibility of animation as documentary. So that was one thing. Um, and a document in this case of uh, um, a filmmaker's life. But also to me, I think I was absorbing that significance of that fast cutting can be done well or really badly. You know, that fast cutting, if you if you do it in such a way that it creates a larger meaning, then it's that's an effective way to use the medium of film. So why, for you, was it successful? And, and what did you love well, about it? Well, you've covered it? a lot of the reasons for its success there. Let's, let's, uh, first of all, it is an account of his life up to the point of the release of the film. So he, up to the point of completing that film, he's made a film that is a document of his life and his growth as a human being and his fascination with certain obsessive subjects, including the obsessive ju- subject of himself being frank. It also includes the the analysis of his obsession with everything to do with the letter F because his name starts with F. So he goes through every word in the dictionary that starts with F. And he juxtaposes those words with with the account of his life. So if you're listening to it, aside from looking at those images, you actually have to try and make sense out of the duality of this conflicting thing of these words that start with F and him telling the story about the events in his life. And that's actually a, a very big intellectual challenge to put those things together in a meaningful way in your mind when they are so disparate. But then they're no more disparate than both of them working against the images or the images working against them. But the images themselves, uh, I don't call it fast cutting. I call it a cascading collage. And it's a cascading collage which is made up of um, somebody using basically a single frame animation technique on a bollex type camera. It's like a blossoming of ideas. A blossoming of ideas and a blossoming of images. Now, then if he wants to hold on one of them, if he gets up to one like, for example, he says, me, mich, M-I-C-H for the German version of Mich. And, and then he, he, he might he pause on that. And so you're actually getting more frames of that. So it will, le- it will stay for a longer time holding on the screen for a longer time. And he'll be able to surround it with a heart or something like that, heart shape, so that he's saying, I love this, you know. Um, so he's actually playing with all of those. Now, if you were to analyse Frank Film without the audio, to run it absolutely as a video only, image only, you would see it's already bloody well complex enough. But it's much more complex when juxtaposed against the two audio tracks. If you were to run it against either one of those audio tracks and not the other, it would have different meanings, different associations. Now, the one that gives it the absolute... He may have already built a narrative into the images... But he's also built a narrative into the track that talks about the progress of his life. And there's not the same narrative in that as there is in the words of the dictionary that start with F and end, that start with F-A and end up with F-U or whatever yeah. towards the end. I don't know what he finishes on, by the way. But, you know, there are really three continuous streams going on in that film. 
Now, no audience can take them all in. It's a film that invites you to multiple viewings. And it allows you that in a different state of consciousness at each viewing, you're going to focus on different things. You're never going to see it the same way twice because your mind is going to be in different states of observation or reflection or excitement or whatever. And you're going to see things in it the second time that you didn't see the first time. And you're going to say things, oh, I saw this in the first one. I'm not interested in that anymore. I want this bit, you know. And now I just wanted to get a little bit more about you and then I might jump through to sort of more general questions at the end. So you spent, you know, however many years in the institution of education. Mm. You continue to, there's something about you that is teacher-like. You you like sharing your passion with people. Tell me a bit about that and what, what you do with that and why that's there and where it's going. Well, it's problematic because, as you know, I ran a session for people up here in film uh, and I also ran music for beginners. And some of these people are really deeply interested and some of them are not. I have the ladies in the film study group. Beautiful ladies, beautiful bloody ladies. And they're all in their 60s and some are older. One was older quite a bit. She's in her mid-80s now. And some of them were really, really keen on seeing the films. But then I had a policy where... I, I said to them, I don't want you to read up on the films before you see them. And I don't want you to read up on the films before we discuss them. And then they would do both of these things. I'd say, I'm here to get your opinion in reaction to a film that I want you to nut out for yourself. I don't want you to pre-digest the film, reading some critic's response to say, oh, this is a heap of shit. You know, you shouldn't bother going to see this. Oh, this is a great masterpiece, right? I'm not doing that. I'm not teaching them it's a heap of shit or a great masterpiece. Okay, here's a film. I'm interested to know how you're going to react to it. Then if they have difficulties reacting to it, we talk it through. We get each person's opinions of how they reacted to it. Then I say, well, you might be surprised to know that some critics think this is the best film that was ever made and some think it's the worst, right? Now go and read them. But I don't want you to have started before you watched the film seeing that they were saying these things about Yeah, okay. I couldn't stop them doing that. Then then I would have, there would be some cases where I would show a masterpiece which you would perhaps know as a masterpiece, I would know as a masterpiece, and in fact it might be hailed as a masterpiece throughout the length and breadth of cinema studies, such as people like Cousins, his story of film. Some of these films are on that I call masterpieces were named by him as masterpieces. I would show a film and one of the ladies would say, oh, I'm so underwhelmed by that film, Peter. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to underwhelm you so much, you know. So to me, you, you've highlighted something. And, and this, I think for me, happened even before I was at Film School. I remember showing, um, I'd been overseas um, and taken some panoramic shots of a, a volcano in Indonesia. And, you know, I had my favourite photographs that I'd photographed. And, and a professional photographer friend of mine had said, you know, tell me what you think about um, some of these shots. And he... And, and, and he encouraged me to, to find my voice in what I... To find your way of identifying what was going on in What them. was good, what was bad. What, and, and he encouraged me, he said, you know, right, that what you said then, like, take confidence in your own understanding and appreciation of things. You had a good guide, Richard. So, so that's, that's one thing. So I guess what I'm leading to is what, what other sort of tips, you know, some, some of the people that might watch this might be art teachers, yeah. might be starting out. What are other tips for art teachers in particular? I'll tell you this story. I showed this film. 
You heard me mention it earlier today. It's called Dangerous Liaisons. Very tough film. And Glenn Close plays it and John Malkovich. And there's a few great players in it. Uh, And uh, I showed it to a lady who was staying with me for a while. And she said, oh, she said, Peter, I don't want to see this film. She loved all the films I showed to her. But she said, no, I don't want to see that one. I said, why? She said, oh, we saw it up in New South Wales and I didn't like it. I said, what do you mean you saw it in New Union? Oh, we went out one night, the six of us, her and her partner and two other pairs, right? And we had a real bad night out. <coughs> we hated the film. I said, well, let me do, let's do, do me a favour. How about we watch it for a while and you see if you like it, watching it with me. And she said, it'll probably be just the same. Anyhow, because she knew, because I trusted her taste, because she really did respond to a lot of music and stuff that I was surprised by, right? She had a go at it and she watched it right through and she said, how could I have not liked this film? I said, it was not a fun film. It was not a night out film with your friends. It was a film that is deeply disturbing and challenging and you're not meant to say, I love this film. It's not like that. But she was expecting light-hearted entertainment. And it's not. It's difficult territory. And this is when I... And I use the word truth very carefully because I know there's all sorts of... You know, you, you mentioned that before and you don't necessarily want to go there. But the, the, to me, there's something about art that connects with us that has... You know, I call it an emotional truth, for want of a better word. There is something that we find and appreciate in art that is connected to our lives that somehow rings true, and that's why we make films, and that's why we love to share the films that we like to share. Is that a fair way? Is that no, fair because way? I'll tell you why. There are there are films that obviously very much do touch you in one way or another that you can say, yes, I have a correlative to that out of my life. But there are others that have none at all, and they are only in the realm of imagination. Sure. But So in other words, I'm not going for this notion of yours about truth. But if I look at a film like Fellini's La Strada, I know, yeah, there is a truth in this film. There is a, ver- there is a, a veracity in this film and in, in, uh, in Bresson's film uh, Diary of a Country Priest uh, and in Pather Panchali by Sadi Ajit Ray. These are films that have great veracity they strike a, a chord in your being that you say yeah so that when in uh, la strada where the t- the character Jelsamina uh, dies after the angel character played by richard basehart has been killed by the anthony quinn character who is zampano and when zampano <laughs> goes and lies on the beach and basically say, what have I done to deserve being this person? I didn't mean to be like this. It's terrifying. And I think you don't, you don't have to have lived through something like that yourself to know his, his agony. And yet he's a monster. He is a monster. <laughs> and then, so, okay, I'm a bit lost now. Keep going. I can take more before well, we play. So, so the final one I was sort of I do want to ask because I ask this of most people, and that is, what's the earliest memory you have of the moving image? Oh, that's really hard, that's Richard. No, no, but I can say this to you because I I grew up in Belgrave when I was four. My mum and dad and I and my sister lived in Belgrave. My little brother John was born there. And we had moved from either Camberwell or South California, something like that, to Belgrave. 
And then we came back to Box Hill after that. So while I was in Belgrave, we used to go to the Cameo to see the Cameo in Belgrave. We used to see films on either a Friday or a Saturday night. And of course, they're taking a four-year-old to see a movie, right? So guess what? One of the early films I saw there at Belgrave, probably 1947, had Joan of Arc. Another film I saw there was Gabby Hayes in Give Me Singing Give Me Land, Lots of Land, A Merry Lot of Land, Don't Fence Me In. So these are my early memories, and I don't think they have much in common, these two films, but I think I got off to a good start. <laughs> and I think I probably, you know, I probably saw at the Campbell... Now, the other early films that made a huge impression upon me, and now we're talking a few years later, I'm talking about the Saturday matinees at, at the Rivoli and at the Canterbury Mailing Theatre because we lived in Box Hill and Surrey Hills, that area, and we used to go to Canterbury and we used to go to Camberwell to see the Saturday matinee films. And there, not only, not only the, the, the feature films we saw... Films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, things like um, The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, films like, um, uh, uh, come on, The Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster and things like that. But also the, pre the previews to the films, the, the cartoons and the absolutely brilliant serials like Batman and Superman. I was totally, I'm, I'm a suck in for the fucking Batman, Superman serials from that period, right? I was headline and sinker into those, right? I absolutely gone, gobsmacked. When Superman goes, when he's, when the kryptonites knocked him out and he's on that bloody, on that conveyor belt to the oven, I'm waiting for the, I'm there for the next week. Don't you worry about that. I'm coming back. They knew how to do cliffhangers, didn't they? Didn't they? Yeah. Um, good. Any look, we could keep going for ages. That's enough. Is there anything else that you want to, that you thought well, might be relevant to no, either I, the teaching I, I or the, or the creative side? we covered a lot of territory. I just think that I'll, I'll just finish off with something we started with, you know. I actually don't care for anything to do with the categories that lock films in and say, you know, you can have an entertainment piece that goes on mainstream cinema that can turn into one of the best films of all time, such as Psycho, Right. You can have a, a film that is made for the art house, like last year at Marion Bad, it can never be shown in any cinema mainstream, and millions of people in the world are either going to love it or hate it. Most of them are going to hate it. Well, I'm going to love it no matter what, you know. Uh, and I don't like the categories, like even a documentary. What is a documentary? Is that You've heard me say this when I taught you at, at VCA. I actually don't think most documentaries are Reality. I think they're a fiction. I, I think most documentaries are a pretense at documentary. That and, and that, you know, you can have a feature film like Hitchcock's The Wrong Man, which is a story film in a feature film mode, and it's more like a documentary than any documentary. I've said enough, and you've, uh, this is, you've got much more than half an hour's worth there, Richard. <laughs> and you've given me too much work to do now. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the show, join our new Facebook group, or tell someone else who's looking for a short film for their teaching.